Paul Carlson sat along the wall in his prison cell. He looked around the small room filled with several other American men, and he could tell that they were all getting nervous. So he decided to pull out his small New Testament and read a little bit. It had been one month since his capture by the Simba rebels in the Republic of Congo on October 21st, 1964. Now he was completely cut off from his family, his friends, and the people to whom God had called him, who affectionately called him Monganga Paul. The men who held him prisoner were threatening to kill him and the rest of the Americans should the U.S. try to intervene and save him. Four years earlier, the Republic of Congo had gained independence from Belgium. Even after this, though, the Belgian government kept its own people in several places just to aid in the transition, for economic reasons, of course. And a lot of the Congolese people resented this. They resented the government, and rebel factions began to spring up all over the country. And the Simba rebels were one of these. They were supported by the Soviet Union and by China, and they eventually gained control over a large portion of the central region of the country in 1964. This is exactly where Paul Carlson and his family were working. The Carlsons were medical missionaries who'd left their private practice in California to follow the call of God on their lives. Paul, his wife Lois, his son Wayne, and his daughter Lynette had arrived a year earlier in 1963. In their small jungle clearing called Wasolo, they ran a hospital with about 80 beds that served over 100,000 people in the area who wouldn't have had a doctor otherwise. Wayne, who had just turned nine, routinely liked to help his father in the hospital doing procedures and things like that, and he was quickly becoming a doctor, just like his dad. Lois and Lynette did what most missionary wives and daughters at the time did, and they ran the home and the headquarters for the missionary operation while the dad and any of the sons went out and did the missionary work. As the Simba rebels gained ground, getting closer and closer to Wasolo, Paul recorded a message to send back to the church at home in the States. In days like this, we certainly have to leave the future in God's hands. We trust that God will continue to do, to leave an open door, but obviously, whether we will be able to be here or whether the task will be left to our African Christian brothers is impossible to say. Continue to uphold us in prayer. Pray that these days of trial may not be just be days in which we feel trial, but through the trials we face here, we may be an effective witness for Christ. We need to prepare the Congolese both so that they will be willing to suffer if they have to do that to follow Christ, and so that their strength and dependence is truly on Him that it might be resting firmly on Christ our Savior, so that in times like these they might know that they have a Lord and God who will carry them through. A few days later, on September 6, 1964, Paul and Lois decided it was best if she and the kids evacuate north into the Central African Republic across the Ubangi River. Paul, the caring doctor and missionary, felt God leading him and decided to stay behind for the sake of several patients who were in critical care. In a memoir of their experiences, Lois wrote, it was a tearful and sad leave-taking from Masolo that morning in the truck. We left for Yakoma, hoping in our hearts that this was only a warning and that we might be back soon. But there was no assurance in our hearts 
no feeling of confidence as to what might happen. When we had discussed and prayed with our station leaders, and Paul and I had talked things over and prayed, it was decided that Paul should take us across the Obanki River into Central African Republic and then return to the station and take care of those who needed him so desperately in this vast area that would otherwise be without a doctor. Just as I had never asked Paul to stay away from a patient who needed him when he was in practice in the United States, I never begged him to stay away from a patient when we were in Congo. We both knew he was needed. We knew he must stay as long as he felt safe to do so, and the Lord was leading him. In the week that followed, Lois and her children received brief radio contacts from Paul, letting them know that he was all right and that he planned to get away shortly. On Saturday morning, September 12th, though, Paul's voice came crackling over the radio. I'm sorry, I've misjudged the situation. I'm here. Please get plane reservations for the family so they may leave the area they are in. Don't send rescue. If I leave in such a way, they may harm others. Please don't. I'm all right now. I'm sure things will work out. Do not expect me to respond again today. I'm all right. The Lord is very near. After that, the radio went silent. News reports in the Congo were unreliable, mostly based on rumors, and under the control of whichever faction happened to be operating the radio transmitter at the time. Without reliable information about her husband and with the school year starting, Lois decided to send her children off to boarding school with all the other missionary kids, trusting that God would take care of everything. But Lynette, who was only about seven at the time, refused to go. Mommy, she said, I feel just like a little kitten that's being taken away from its mama too soon. Whose heart wouldn't break at those words from a seven-year-old. So Lois decided to keep Lynette close and homeschool her. They waited day after day for news of where Daddy might be, but nothing came. Toward the end of September, a Los Angeles newspaper from back home arrived with the headline, Local Medic Captured. Their fear had become a reality. Paul had been captured by the Simba rebels. In the month that followed, several friends stopped by who had escaped from the area around Wasolo. They told stories about seeing Paul and tried, to be, tried their best to comfort Lois. They told her that he was in good spirits, always encouraging everyone and reading from the, his New Testament. After about six weeks of being separated, Radio Stanleyville, the main radio station in the capital city, reported that a Major Carlson, a mercenary, had been brought to Stanleyville as a U.S. spy and was now awaiting trial along with about 200 others. With the Belgian government and the American government pushing for negotiations and release of their respective citizens, the symbol rebels began to be afraid and take more and more hostages just in case there was an invasion. As news of this found its way north to Lois, she began to fear the worst might happen, that Paul would be executed before anything could be done to save him. And that fear continued to gnaw at her for three more weeks without any further news. On the morning of November 24th, Paul awoke to the sound of airplanes overhead in the prison cell that he shared with other Americans. The Simba had been threatening to kill them all if the planes should come. Would they now stay true to their word? The sound of men running outside the cell got everyone inside up on their feet. The radio on the table outside the door began to crackle and a voice came over Radio Stanleyville. Kill them all, men, women, and children, kill them all. Have no scruples. 
kill them all. Paul's captors let him and about 150 of the other hostages out into the street where a covered truck pulled up, unloaded a machine gun, and opened fire. Paul and fellow American Chuck Davis were toward the back of the crowd, and they ran for it as mothers threw themselves over their children and people began to fall all around them. A short distance away was a brick wall that some began climbing over to safety. Paul helped Chuck climb the wall first, and as Chuck reached the top of the wall, he reached back to help Paul make the climb, but Paul had fallen to the ground where he lay completely still. Later that morning, a representative from the American embassy knocked on Lois's door where she and the kids were staying. After learning of her husband's death, she said, please don't tell my kids yet. Then she went silent for a few minutes, and when she finally spoke again with a shaky, quivering voice, she said, his work was finished here, and he was called to God. He was following God's will. I want to talk this morning about following God's will. What is it that would so possess a person as to compel them to head toward danger to follow the call of God? Our most basic instincts are just to run away from danger. Why do people like Paul Carlson follow the will of God and go toward danger, even if it means danger and death? Why does that seem scary to us and make us hope that God will never call us to do that kind of a thing? We're going to get to Acts 21 in just a minute, but I want us to feel these emotions as a starting point. Following Jesus into the shadow of death is, a, is painful on multiple levels. Feel the struggle and the pain with me for the moment. What must those moments of not knowing whether Paul was alive or not have done to Lois and her children? What would it have done to Paul knowing that his decision to stay had separated him from his wife and his two kids and could possibly leave them without a father? This is the kind of situation we find here in Acts 21. Despite warning after warning from his friends, Paul continues on to Jerusalem. And in the last few weeks, we've seen him begin this last stretch of his first final missionary journey. And at each stop along the way, he meets his friends and his Christian family who all basically say the same thing. Don't go. But Paul's response to each of them is, I'm compelled by the Spirit. And now at this final stop on his way to Jerusalem, he gets one final plea from his friends and his family to stay away from Jerusalem. We're only going to look at the first 16 verses here in in Acts 21. There's a lot to unpack, though, so uh, stay with me. If you remember from last week, Paul had just finished talking with the Ephesian elders where he was staying there in Miletus. And he was giving them kind of his last words of fatherly advice, which, as Chase summed up so accurately, was basically, give. Now, knowing that he would never see them again, he got on a boat and headed toward Jerusalem. Let's read, starting in verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our way, our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us bringing us to the house of Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. <coughs> Chapter 21 begins really the last main section of the book of Acts. So far, the entirety of what Luke has written has been focused on the expansion of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the lives of ordinary people. It's why people like Eutychus and Lydia and Rhoda are named. Luke wants to make it clear that the Spirit is the one behind everything that's happening, continually leading and guiding the church into new places, just like Jesus promised in Acts 1.8. Now, after the main story of the expansion of Christianity throughout the known world is finished, Luke focuses in on the last few years in Paul's life as kind of a biopic look at how the Spirit continues to lead and guide this one man who once murdered Christians. There's some really cool symmetry, too, here between the church's expansion from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world, and Paul's own journey that will start here in Jerusalem and then go on to Rome. But we won't get into that. We'll save that for the rest of the book. By this time, Paul was known throughout the church and the entire region, And now he lands at Tyre, a city in which he's really never done ministry, at least not that we have recorded anyway, and he seeks out the local disciples there. On a side note, it's kind of amazing to me how even uh, in a place that you've never been before, you can meet up with other Christians and there's a common bond. And that's kind of what Paul's finding here at Tyre. He went looking for family that he had never met. And Luke says that through the Spirit, they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And we should pause just a little bit and look at the way the ESV translates this. Previously, Paul was saying that the Spirit was compelling him to go to Jerusalem. And now the disciples at Tyre, through the same Spirit, tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. If this doesn't make you stop and think that's a contradiction, read it a little bit more slowly. (laughs) It's not really a contradiction, though. And I think John Stott gives us a fairly succinct explanation as to why this is. He says, the better solution is to draw a distinction between prediction and prohibition. Luke's statement is a condensed way of saying that the warning was divine, 
while the urging was human. It seems Luke wants to make it clear that these predictions of what's going to happen in Paul's life are coming from God. The disciples at Tyre spoke through the Spirit. Philip's daughters were known to be prophets. And Luke specifically mentions Agabus by name, because in chapter 11, Agabus had accurately prophesied that the famine would hit Judea. Paul was definitely going to face prison in Jerusalem. But that didn't mean the Spirit wasn't telling him to go. We see this same kind of thing happen to Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples, and then immediately Peter turns and says, in not so many words, we're never going to let that happen. And Jesus rebukes him for it. I think Luke is trying to draw parallels between Jesus and Paul at this point to drive home the value of the Spirit's work and empowerment in their lives. After the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus like a dove at his baptism, Luke describes Jesus as being full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And it was through the Spirit that Jesus predicted his own death when he said in Luke 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. This is strikingly similar to what Luke records here in Acts 21, when Agabus says, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the hands of the Gentiles. The parallels don't stop there, though. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, to willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And now as Paul asks his friends why they continue to break his heart with their weeping and begging him to stay, they all respond together, let the will of the Lord be done. I think Luke is making these parallels to point us to something. We've seen one of the focuses of Acts is the work of the Spirit in the church. And in Luke, Jesus, on what was undoubtedly the worst night of his life, resolved to let the will of the Father be done. In contrast, only a few minutes before that, Peter declared he would follow Jesus to prison and even death, only to deny him hours later. Things are different now in Acts, though. With the power of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus, men like Peter, James, and Paul now follow the example of their Lord and Savior, and with the same resolve Jesus had, Paul now looks toward Jerusalem, prison, and even death, and says, in effect, not my will, but yours be done. What is it that would so compel Paul to continue on to Jerusalem when everyone around him is urging him to stay away? Why would he willingly stay, want to, why would he be willing to say, I'm ready to be imprisoned and die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus? I don't know that I fully understand the level of peace I would have to have to be able to follow through with a commitment like that. It's hard enough when I have to do something small, like admit to something that I know will cause me trouble or an inconvenience. That's probably a sign I haven't fully grasped what the Spirit was doing in Paul's life here in Acts 21. I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit would supernaturally give me that peace should the time come. He could do that, and it definitely wouldn't be me. (laughs) The good news is, though, that the Spirit doesn't leave us alone in those situations. And that's what he did for Paul here. In Miletus, he spent time with the Ephesian elders, a group with whom he'd spent more than two years in ministry. They were his family. 
In Tyre, he spent one week with other Christians, and it ended with an emotional time on the beach where they all knelt together and prayed on the sand. In Ptolemaeus, he met more Christians and stayed with them. In Caesarea, he met Philip, who left Jerusalem as Paul's persecution of the church began to increase. Yeah, let's admire the irony of that. Paul drives Philip out of Jerusalem and kills his friends, and now Philip invites him into his house. That's the Spirit. At each stop along the way to Jerusalem, the Spirit predicts what Paul is going to experience. But he also gives him family and friends who come alongside him and encourage him. When faced with prison and death, the Spirit gave Paul fellow disciples, traveling the way with him, to help him move forward in the direction God was leading him. Think back to the story of the Carlsons for a minute. Feel those emotions again. Be honest with yourself. In the middle of that situation, would you have the resolve to follow the leading of the Spirit and say, not my will, but yours be done? It's okay if the answer is no. That was Peter's answer on the night that he betrayed Jesus. But Peter eventually followed the leading of the Spirit and, according to tradition, asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. Paul went from a man who murdered Christians to a man who followed the leading of the Spirit towards imprisonment and his own death. Luke makes it clear this wasn't easy for Paul. But the work of the Spirit in his life and in the life of the church made it possible for Paul to take step after step toward Jerusalem. I think this is really what Luke is trying to communicate in this passage. He wants us to follow the Spirit in the same way Jesus did, in the same way Paul did no matter where it leads us. He wants our desire to know Jesus, our Lord and Savior, to so overwhelm our lives that we want nothing more than to follow the Spirit into any situation. A few years after this account in Acts 21, Paul would later write his letter to the Philippians. And in chapter 3, he wrote, But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You can't really know someone unless you share experiences with them in some way. It's the process of going through things together in life, experiencing the ups and downs that brings intimacy in a relationship. When I first got married, I thought knowing another person would be relatively easy and that there wouldn't be much to learn after about a year or so. you got to know, I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and boxed mac and cheese. I know, I eat like a kid sometimes. After about two years of marriage, so yeah, just over eight years ago now, and Alicia and I had known each other for about ten years at that point. We kind of grew up in the same church together. Alicia and I walked into our apartment one evening, and we were trying to figure out what to do for supper, and I was like, Let's do peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They're cheap. We don't have to spend any money, and they taste good. I thought, yeah, she'll go for that. Instead, I got a look that made me feel like I had just said something really, really stupid. And 
So being the young husband, I said it again. (laughs) Just in case you didn't hear me. Again, same look. Apparently I had been living under the same roof with someone who hated peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I didn't have a clue. That's a pretty small example. We've been through a lot of other shared experiences since then, a lot of deep and dark stuff. Every single one of those shared experiences gave us something new that we shared in common with each other. So every once in a while I'll joke and look at Alicia and say, you want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? (laughs) And it's these kind of shared experiences that made it so important for Paul to know Jesus and to share in his sufferings. Think about it like this. God, the creator of the universe and everything around us, reveals himself in the man Jesus. That man's life was full of persecution by religious leaders, quiet times alone with his father, and suffering that led to his death on the cross. If your life had been completely changed by this man, like Paul's was, and he showed you a grace you knew you didn't deserve, if you really wanted to get to know that man, if you wanted to understand what it was like to be him, what's the best way to do that? It happens by doing the same things he did. It happens by sharing those same experiences he had. That's why Paul wanted to share in Christ's sufferings, He was so captivated by the Savior that had transformed his life that he was willing to follow the leading of his spirit, even if it meant imprisonment and death. Paul wanted to do God's will because he wanted to know Jesus in the deepest way possible. How do you get to know someone like this? It's these shared experiences. We share Jesus' experiences when we suffer in the same way he suffered. And now three missionary journeys in, Beatings and imprisonments, stoning, and much more. Paul had a lot of these shared experiences with Jesus. Now the Spirit compelled him to follow into another shared experience, one that would eventually lead to his death, just like it led Jesus to his death. That's really what God wants for each of our lives. That's what it means to follow God's will. Not necessarily following the leading of the Spirit into our deaths, but into the deep relationship that we form with him as we live the kind of life that he lived. When we live that kind of life, when we do the things that he did, the world treats us in the same way that it treated him. That creates a shared experience that helps us know God in a way that we couldn't otherwise know him. He wants us to desire to know him so deeply that our desire to know him begins to override our desire to have our own way. In the end, that's what compelled Paul to go to Jerusalem even when everyone begged him not to go. It's what compelled Paul Carlson to stay behind in Wasolo as the Simba rebels got closer and closer. God wants our desire to know him to compel us to follow him into any situation. I think there are four questions we can ask ourselves that will help us strengthen that desire. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, though. That's a relationship that we're talking about. Those things take time to develop and build. Depth doesn't happen in a single moment. But you'll get moving there if you keep moving forward in that relationship with God one step at a time. So the first question, what shared experiences with Jesus might the Spirit be leading me toward? I want you to take some time and chew on this one. Don't write down a quick answer and just move on or anything like that. Really think about who Jesus is. Think about what he did. 
As a quick example, Jesus would often disappear for hours on end just to be with his Father in prayer and escape the world and the noise around him. I know what life's like in Springfield, and it's easy to get busy doing work and family and friends and everything else in between. But if Jesus routinely dropped everything just to get some time alone with his Father, and if we want to share an experience with him, we could try to do the same thing. Let the phone ring or go to voicemail. Tell the people around you that you'll be unavailable for a couple of hours. Look for the things that Jesus did and ask the Spirit to lead you into those shared experiences. They don't have to include suffering, but they might. Follow him. Deepen your desire to know him by doing the things that he did. Second question. What do I value more than knowing Jesus that keeps me from wanting to share experiences or even suffering with him? This one digs deep. If you're really honest as you work through this question, God will help you see all kinds of things in your life you didn't know about yourself and about your desires. Fasting is a great example of this. When you fast, you step away from your desire for food and your desire to, and desire to know God instead. Really, you can fast anything. And if the Spirit's leading you to spend a few hours with Him, but you really want to get through the stuff you've missed on Facebook, which desire is more important? If the Spirit leads you to talk with a stranger in a checkout line, but you desire not to talk because you've had a long day, which desire is more important to you? I don't say this to make you feel like an inferior Christian. I struggle with those same questions all the time. It's really about honestly looking at our lives and evaluating where our desires are pointed so that we can get them pointed in the right direction, so that we can get them pointed to Christ above all else. Third, what suffering might I be trying to avoid now that could be an opportunity to share an experience with Jesus? It's really easy to look at the Christian life and think that after we start following Jesus, everything should be better and easier. And just from the stories that I hear in conversations with all of you, I know that you've had your fair share of suffering. I don't want to dismiss what you've experienced. Instead, I want to help you look for the leading of the Spirit in those painful moments. Keep in mind, not all suffering's the same. If I decide to punch a wall and break my hand, I'll suffer, but it's not the same kind of suffering that Jesus experienced. Look for the suffering that you experience that mirrors the suffering Jesus experienced. In 1 Peter, Peter says, if you do something wrong and you suffer, well, everybody goes through that, but if you suffer for doing good, that's what Jesus did. Look for the moments when you lose out on a huge opportunity because, you're God, because God led you to spend time with Him instead. Look for those moments when your coworkers treat you differently because you're a Christian. God's bigger than those moments. Look at them as an opportunity to experience the things Jesus experienced because you want to know Him better. Last question. When the Spirit tells me there's suffering ahead, what can I do to follow Him rather than looking for a way out. Paul had all kinds of opportunities to not go to Jerusalem. Every stop along the way to Jerusalem was an opportunity to say, I'm just going to stop here. But he kept moving forward. This last question has more of a straightforward answer than the other three, and it comes straight out of the passage today. Desire to know God so deeply that you want to follow, even when it gets tough, and surround yourself with believers who can encourage you pray with you, and together with you say, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives that continues to lead us and guide us and shape us. And when we, we face difficult situations in life, you remember that we're but flesh. You know our desires and how crooked and twisted they can be at times. And yet you lovingly lead us and guide us and continue to shape those desires and to make them more like you. God, I pray that you would help us to be willing to follow the leading of your spirit through that shaping. I pray that you would develop in us a desire to know you so much that we would want to follow you no matter where you lead us. God, I pray that you would give us opportunities to share experiences with you. Even the simple things at first, Lord, where we take 10 minutes to move away from the rest of the world and the noise around us and just spend time with our Father. God, continue to develop and lead us and guide us in those areas so that when it does come time for us to follow you into situations where we normally wouldn't, that we would be willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. Thank you for your grace to continue to shape us, Lord. Thank you for always giving us that grace. May we never overlook that. May we never take it for granted. And may we always keep it as uh, something that's at the forefront of our, our thoughts. That you're giving us grace so that we can continue to know you more. And that what you've done for us would so captivate us and so overwhelm us that we would want to do nothing more than to know the God who saved us. Know the God who's given us this grace that we don't deserve. Thank you for that, Lord. Amen.